Hello, and welcome to Office Hours. If you're finding us on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. There you can become a producer of the show, meaning you can submit the questions that our experts will be answering for this hour on uh, media and production, and also for our education hour. We have our uh, final education hour for until until the summer break. So be sure to take advantage of the resource we have with our educators on the panel today. Uh, but let's get right into the questions. TJ, what do we have? Thank you, Josh. First up this morning is Cindy Drosta from Erie, Colorado. Cindy says, I'm looking to upgrade my Intel iMac. What specs of M2 Mac Mini will give good performance when editing video with DaVinci Resolve or Final Cut Pro? CPU cores, GPU cores, RAM, SSD size, etc. TJ? So with Macs and specifically the Mac Mini, I am a firm believer of buying as much as you can possibly afford up front. There is no upgrade path with the Mac Mini. And uh, I would recommend maxing it out with the, and I'm looking at the specs here, the 12-core CPU with the 19-core GPU, and max out your memory with 32 gigs of RAM. And with these Mac Minis and the Mac Studios, the higher... Um, built-in internal hard drive storage options tend to be incredibly high performance. And so if you have the budget, I would look into, say, like a minimum of four terabyte of SSD storage. And that gives you an opportunity, especially when editing, to sort of bring the project locally onto the, the drive on the machine, do your work, and then when you're finished with the editing, then move that to an offline drive to um, you know, keep it for storage or what have you. And you know, as we're talking um, high-end Mac minis here, we're getting into fairly pricey, you know, about 3000 or maybe a little bit more. And at that price, I would also take a look at the Mac Studio. Um, it's going to be probably a little bit more, but you're getting a lot more bang for the buck at that point, I think. You can get more memory in the Mac Studios, um, you know, I, and um, the other thing is if the need is not real pressing, take a look at the Apple refurbished store. Uh, you can often get really good deals on the refurb Macs. I happen to pick up a Mac Studio refurbished for a really good deal. And I actually got my Mac Studio last year before somebody who had ordered it day one from Apple. And I had similar specs to what they had ordered uh, slightly under. And I happened to get mine about a month before they got theirs. And I just went on and said, yeah, I'll take that refurb. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Wow, you know that that bone pretty good. Um, I will say... Yeah, buy once, cry once, and especially if this is your primary source of income. It's the best way to not only be in touch with current, but also ahead of the curve for because you never know what's going to happen in a year. Uh, maybe uh, Final Cut Pro will have some new feature that will really run best on the uh, highest end Mac Studio right now. And if you're stu stuck on an M2, a lower end M2, then you might not be able to, to, you might have to reinvest at that point. So it's always good uh, to do that. Also think about 
what you're going to be attaching to your studio. You got a monitor, you'll probably want to have some sort of dock. Uh, well, if you get the studio, you'll have you ha- might have more than enough Thunderbolt ports to uh, to run from. But uh, are you going to be putting a dock into there like an OWC? Uh, well trusted dock, very important. Self powered dock, very important. Uh, and uh, be able to uh, do what you need to do with that device. So I basically I'd just run the list, uh, put down a list of everything you're going to put onto that machine. And then see what type of resources you go from there. But yeah, buy once, cry once is always the best option. And John? Follow-up question for both of you. When deciding what you're going to cry over, how would you prioritize? Would you prioritize RAM, storage space, or the chipset when you're thinking of upgrades on a limited budget? I would would cry over the RAM and the processor most. And for me, it's anything that you cannot upgrade. So it's going to be CPU, RAM, and storage. And there's, there, it, it's, all, it's a trifecta. There's nothing you can do about it anymore. Yeah. Um, Mickey in the chat kind of uh, has that um, I, the idea going about um, plugging in your projects to use them. So upgrading the things that are not storage. And I'm trying to remember. I know the um, the lower spec versions of the M2 had the affliction that have the single chip of not having as fast of a read speed and write speed. Does that go away once you get the higher configurations that have a double memory? I uh, can't quite remember. Yeah, that was the that was the solid state storage devices, and the way that they had it is in some of the newer ones. If you had the lesser um, the or maybe it was the RAM, one of the two, but right, it, there was like one channel, and then if you got an upgraded amount, then it was using both channels. Go ahead, Tony. I think everything that's been said is great. Um, I just wanted to um, pose a uh, another alternative for Cindy, and that is to get two machines with. I would say uh, a mid-range of upgrades on it, and that will allow her to have flexibility. And then you don't have all of your eggs in one basket. Yeah, and um, Richard uh, weighs in in the chat as well. Um, If you can buy the next level up chip uh, from the base model, uh, then you can gain some speed models that seems to to fall into our theory. All right. Cindy, hopefully that uh, helps you out. Let's go to our next question. John Snyder from Reno, Nevada says, are there any new AI tools for instruction that you have learned about lately that we didn't cover last week? Aaron? So this past week with my students, I was able to use the website Curapod. Um, So I thought I would share that super quick. Okay, I'm thinking we can see this now. So Curapod is a great site that uses AI to help teachers create their lesson plans. So this past week, I was doing um, researching different types of scientists with my students. So I was able to go to generator and I was able to type in the type of lesson I wanted. So I'll just do it again, just in case. So if I wanted to do um, types of scientists... 
And then you can choose your grade level. It goes all the way through eighth grade, but I could even knock it down to a first grade level and have it do magic. And it reminds you to check the fact content, um, which I think is very important, but it generates Google Slides for students or a type of slide. So you give them a code that will show up on their on their own device, whether it's a Chromebook, a MacBook, or a phone even. Um, and it gives you slides with information on it that you can change or not. They have polls that are in there as well. They also do a really great one. Um, let me see if I can drop it in for SEL. There's like a brain break and it tells them that they need to draw something on the screen for fun. Um, the one that I, oh, so this one was something similar to what I did with my kids. Draw a happy pineapple, enjoying a day at the beach with sunglasses, a t-shirt and flip-flops. And a drawing screen will come up for them in order to participate and draw. And then they can vote on which one is the funniest or the silliest, or you can regenerate it. But there's all different things you can do. And a bunch of teachers have already put a lot of things in under the Discover tab, under brain breaks and math and um, creativity, how to like build different things. Um, I personally love the social emotional one, um, like check-ins, like mindful mornings, things like that. But I think it really just helps students. Um, I'll pop back here. It really helps students um, become part of the lesson instead of it just being the teacher showing slides. Um, it's very interactive and it saves me some time. I mean, I obviously check what's going out to my students, but that just took away so much of the stuff that I had to work on that it just blew my mind. So love Curapod. Do you find, Aaron, that um, you just have to make the, the typical AI uh, corrections uh, when you're making those lesson plans? Yeah, absolutely. There were, um, I actually had a run in with uh, two slides that were back to back. Like the first one said, name any type of scientist that you know. And then they gave the next slide was, the definition of scientist, which was fine. But then the next one was list a type of scientist that you know. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> we just did that. So yeah, you do have to check it out and make sure that it's accurate and what you need. But overall, going in and taking five extra minutes versus like trying to recreate the wheel definitely saves time, which is very helpful for teachers. Next buzzword is going to be human certified, AI enable human certified. Go ahead, John. Maybe they're just trying to do spaced repetition with those slides. <laughs> For you, Aaron, is that a thing? It looked like this. So the students have their own devices and, and you, are you guiding their devices along so they're following your presentation automatically? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know, I know there are other um, not AI sites, but sites like Pear Deck and things like that where they could go at an individual pace. So if you had a student that was a little farther beyond, you could let them go at their own pace with their information. I don't think Curapod has that yet, but overall it does do it for the whole group of students. So I, they can't move on until I advance the slide. So even if the timer goes off, they cannot move on until I personally click the button. Got TJ. Uh, yeah, John pretty much asked what I was. I was just curious whether or not this was all in an in-classroom environment or not. Fantastic. All right. There's, there's just uh, so many tools uh, coming out. We'll get to pick our favorites. They'll all fight together, and um, then we'll get to pick the, the victors. Let's go to our next question.
Douglas Carmichael asks, do you think we'll see Zoom on the Apple TV similar to FaceTime on the Apple TV? Samuel? Yeah, well, I think it would make a lot of sense uh, if, they, if they're able to uh, get the, the permissions to uh, make the app on the, on the Apple TV. Uh, uh, Zoom has been making, uh, expanding a lot of different platforms lately. Uh, they uh, just re- released the uh, the Android uh, automotive integration, so uh, the cars that have the, this will be able to uh, to download the Zoom app and uh, open uh, video meetings inside the car screen. Dave. Yeah, as far as I know, Douglas, the announcement did announce that uh, Zoom, Teams, and uh, Google Meet, I believe, are and, and Skype are going to be uh, offering apps on the Apple TV, and it will have the API for working through that FaceTime interface that we we've uh, were shown during the presentation. Interesting. Go ahead, TJ. Um, yes, I actually hope they do because Zoom has been the leader, in my opinion, in the um, tele part of the telecommunication uh, interfaces that we've been using of the last several years, and um, I, you know, just stuff that they're doing is pretty amazing. And I'm curious, Samuel, um, you had said the they're going to allow a meeting so you can see the video on the car screen in Android Audio. How would they do a camera? Did they say? Uh, well, the, you know, there's uh, not a, at least in the car that I have, it's a Polestar and it uh, has the screen, but it doesn't have any cameras. So I don't think there'll be an integration with a camera in the first. I think it's on the audio. Go ahead, Tony. I was thinking that they may skip it and just move straight to the uh, Apple uh, Vision Pro. Uh, who knows? Uh, Apple is is very innovative. Got to bring that down to the price of the uh, of your Apple TV first. Go ahead, Dave. Well, one of my bigger curiosities is that little device holder they showed in front of the TV in the demo. The person dropped their phone into the slot. And we all want to know where that's from and when we can have one. And uh, as well, if it comes away from the TV and can be closer to you, then you can sit farther away from the TV. But uh, all the talk I've heard in my circle is, where can I get one of those uh, slot things? Got our next question. Paul Walhus from Austin, Texas says, Character AI app had 1.7 million installs in a week. How about these custom AI companions with distinct personalities? And there's a TechCrunch article linked. Good, Jeffrey. Yeah, it's a very interesting, uh, very interesting story from these two guys. These two guys are Google, were Google employees. They started, they founded this company. Uh, I will say uh, on the side note that you are the product when you download and install this because they are trying to build a base and most likely. They're going to build a base. They're going to get to a certain valuation. And they're probably going to sell it right back to Google and then be a part of a side uh, side Google incorporated whatever uh, into the thing. So it's also going to be probably the future of uh, help bots and, and, uh, and front office uh, receptionists and, and different uh, items like that. So you can, uh, you're basically molding 
the how the data is going to be uh, sculpted on there. I'd always be weary about downloading something that's new and in beta if you do not know where it's coming from. In this case, like I said, to uh, ex-Googlers that have uh, decided to uh, to take on this venture, but always watch where your data is going and coming from, especially if it's leaving the United States in any way, shape, or form, because then other governments might be able to consume that that data that you're putting in there as we've been dealing with with TikTok. Yeah, John. Character AI was one of the first unicorns in the AI industry, financed by Andreessen Horowitz, raised $150 million in VC funds based on a billion-dollar valuation. I get a tear in my eye because their business model is similar to what I'm working on. Uh, we'll see where it goes. TJ? Yeah, AI is the uh, current buzzword in, in everything, it seems, these days. The It would be interesting to see if like right now you got a lot of chat bots if you go onto any website they're like oh you know i'm here to help and well there's no person there it's it's a you know some sort of ai or algorithmic chatbot that is doing it and it would be interesting that at some point down the road you get um where it'll pop up and be sort of a a character that will or a, a simulated person that will say oh you know what can i do to help you here absolutely Roscoe in the chat says that even the asking if you want fries with that might get taken away. Let's go to Rank's question. Douglas Carmichael says, I was testing a 14-inch MacBook Pro with Isadora and Touch Designer, and it felt less cramped on the more space setting. However, I've heard the lack of 2x scaling can strain the eyes. What are your warning size of eye strain, and what are your experiences? John? I've never had eye strain from staring at a computer screen myself, but where I do get eye strain is if I don't have enough ambient light and my screen is really bright. For me, the telltale sign is I get a really piercing headache just above my eyebrows, like right behind and above my eyebrows. TJ? Uh, yeah, somebody who spends upwards of 10 hours a day staring at uh, various computer monitors, um, eye strain can be a big problem. It is important to take a break periodically and um, look away, get up, walk around and change your focal distance to something that is farther away than just the monitors, which are usually at about arm's length away from you. And um, what I happens to me, a lot of times, um, if I'm really focused, I will not blink as often as I should. And so my eyes will start to dry out. Uh, like John says, I'll get a headache sometimes if I'm um, you know, suffering from some eye strain. So just take a break once in a while. Jeffrey. So about uh, two years ago, I saw my first version of macular degeneration, which it, basically I was walking around and one eye decided to uh, take a little bit more time to focus in. Uh, eye strain is a very important thing and uh, being able to uh, counter it is, is also very important. Having those monitors at eye eye level so you're not looking down and you're not straining your 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 eyes while you're working is always a great way to do that keeping the monitors as far away as as possible is always a great idea having them uh lowered in light having something like the gunner uh glasses they do have prescription versions of those types of glasses so that's going to help with the screen as you uh, as you're as you're getting older and then of course you know hey you know take your vitamins say your prayers and 
whatever Hulk Hogan said. So that's pretty much it. TJ? And if you ever find yourself sort of squinting and kind of leaning in to look at, you know, to try to get a better look at, at what you're trying to see, that is uh, um, right there, you're having eye strain. So um, take a break or make whatever you're looking at bigger on your screen. Dave? Well, just one last thing. If you were wearing glasses now, when you see your optometrist, ask them if you could have some re reading glasses that are set for computer distance. I had that done and it helped relieve my eye strain quite a bit. Fantastic. Um, producers, I'm talking to you. Um, you who would uh, drive our show by answering, asking questions, feel free to vote on the questions to be able to determine which ones we spend time on, go through. And now's a good time to put in questions, both for our first hour and also for our second hour discussion for our setups. Let's go to our next question. Chad Lafarge from Columbia, Missouri. An attorney admitted to using ChatGPT for a brief in his client's personal injury case. The brief cited six non-existent court decisions. Should the judge use ChatGPT to determine his sanctions against the attorney? John? <laughs> there was two, case, two cases like this this, this, week, this week alone. This is funny. My attorney made me add a slide into my presentation this week specifically to this. This is just incompetence by the attorney. Uh, but according to OpenAI, uh, GPT hallucinates. So that's their word, hallucinates. And it does make up stuff like this. So anything that you run, anything that I run, I run through OpenAI, and then I also run it in Google to cross-check it. And then and and you got to you got to watch them because they will hallucinate. There was another there was another case down in Texas uh, had similar problems, and they and the uh, judge outlawed outlawed is not the right word or it is disallowing any usage of GPT in the court. So we'll see what happens. John Snyder. Did the attorney admit to using ChatGPT or did they get caught using ChatGPT? Because there's a little bit of a difference there. Um, and I think it's a good lesson for all of us that you are responsible for your output. Whether or not you use a tool to help you with it, you should always check your references. And honestly, do your own homework. If you're citing a reference, you should read that reference to make sure it says what you want it to say, at the very least. Um, read the summary or an abstract about it. There are prompts you can use to cite real references in things like ChatGPT. And I suspect as we continue down this path, a lot of tools will be built specifically for finding good references. It's kind of like that, uh, uh, keeping your hands on the wheel for the uh, the AI driving there, you know, uh, you tend to, to let it go away. And uh, I'm sure the lawyer was like, hey, confirmation bias, fantastic. <laughs> Let's go to our next question. Paul Wahoos from Austin, Texas says, is there any comprehensive software program that will survey and analyze your Apple gear, like your Mac mini, your watch, your iPhone, et cetera, not just a virus checker? Jeffrey? So we're wondering what direction you wanted to go on there. It, the watch is the only unknown off of this, but uh, of course uh, you're in Austin and there's a company down there called Spiceworks. And they make a very great IT tool that's uh, that's free. In some cases, they do have paid plans, uh, but you can uh, you can install it and run it. And I ran it. Uh, I was on the beta years years ago. Uh, so basically, what it does is it pings the whole network. It finds all the IP addresses 
queries what's at that IP address and then uh, sees if there's any information that it can pass along. So it'll be able to read your Mac, read your iPhone, most likely read read your watch and then uh, and then tell you and then in some cases even give you uh, ideas as to what type of updates need to be done in certain programs. So once again, that's Spiceworks. It's a great program uh, if you, especially if you have uh, a lot of computers in your network. TJ, yeah, I would invite Paul to um, expand on this to give us sort of a little bit of direction as to what he's looking to accomplished by scanning his devices? Is he looking for bits of software? Is he looking for a program that he's lost? I'm just kind of curious what uh, and that might help. Um, aside from Jeffrey's excellent recommendation, maybe there's something else that we can think of. All right, let's go to our next question. Samuel Nordvik from Norway says, have you made any interesting Zoom cut shortcuts? Samuel, is that a ball to yourself? Well, it wasn't actually meant like that, but uh, since no one else is answering, then I'll uh, give it a shot. Uh, I downloaded Ventura yesterday and was playing with it a little bit, and it seems like it's a cool, cool app. Uh, I made a little integration uh, for uh, Journey After Hours, and it uh, opens the... Uh, if there's a, not a meeting open, then it opens the Unity client, it opens uh, Zoom cuts. Uh, it takes the the URL from the from the clipboard, and it uh, it launches the meeting. And then I'm I'm playing a little bit around with the uh, to put a delay to to be able to uh, uh, to uh, rename myself and turn on my video as soon as the, I'm joined in the meeting. How brave were you in your experimentation there, Samuel? Is this your production machine? It's, and you did upgrade to Ventura just for the privilege? Yeah, yeah that, that it was the, it was uh, uh, the reason I upgraded, yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, I don't really use it as for so much video production, at least not now. So it's mostly just for office hours and Zoom and uh, Daily Driver. Fantastic. Well, um, we do have a uh, now a Discord just for your uh, Zoom cuts. So feel free to exchange. You know, give a shortcut, take a shortcut. Let's take a shortcut right to our next question. Paul Law, who's from Austin, Texas, says, "Has anyone taken Sonoma Beta around the block? That's Mac OS Sonoma. If you have, what new features do you notice?" Oh, come on! I'm still weighing Ventura. Go ahead, DJ. I have not actually taken Sonoma out for a test drive yet. The folks over at Mac Rumors have been posting a lot of new features and interesting features that they've been discovering. And so I would recommend, just from my own personal experience, go take a look and see what they are doing. From my Again, from my personal experience, I don't put any beta software on any machine that I have targeted for any type of production. I do have a computer that's sort of set aside that I reserve to doing experimentation on, and that one will be eventually getting the new Sonoma beta. I just haven't gotten around to it. There is a critical sh supply, short supply of round to it. Nice. Hope you find that. Let's go to our next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado says, 
Could you see Vision Pro content creation simulator, simulator workflow used on Quest 2 with 7.1.4 or binaural home sound after some tweaking Xcode in Metal for VR content testing before Vision Pro is available? Well, just because I can't see it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. I will say that. Uh, go ahead, Jeffrey. I highly doubt it. I mean, you're talking one one platform to program another platform. And uh, yeah, the, the, they're, they're taking two different roads on this. And there's there's a lot of hardware that will be in the Vision Pro that's definitely not in the Quest 2. So I, I don't see this happening at all, no. All right, so I guess we'll have to wait and see. Let's go to our next question. From Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri. John mentioned asking ChatGPT for citations. That's a great tip. What other prompt additions can we make to get better verifiable results? Go ahead, John. I, I agree, absolutely. Um, note that Microsoft Copilot has will show you the, the footnotes for their for their their references, and so does Google Bard as well. Um, and then inside of Copilot, they have more creative, more balanced, more precise. Make sure you select more more precise when you go into use Copilot. If you did more creative, you're more likely to get you're more likely to get uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for hallucinations. <laughs> So those are the two tips. John Snyder. You also can, in ChatGPT, you can do a, a, it's called the temperature. So you can set a temperature setting, which does that creative precise, and you can put it at any range between zero and one, I think is what it is. Um, specifically, if you're looking for accurate citations, what I find adding to prompts is making sure you say things like, you must um, have real references that have at least X citations from Google Scholar. So you're telling it, you're narrowing those search results to about where you're getting the references from and putting criteria in it so that when it predicts the most likely next words, it's actually predicting often cited other sources. So you're basically asking it to look at other things that people cite a lot. And there are other tools. There's plagiarism tech checking tools as well that you should run them against. And you should even use tools like LexisNexis um, is an existing tool to help you find those types of references specifically in a um, law firm. Thanks to a birdie who sent that to me in direct message. Dave. Well, in terms of prompt making better prompts, um, I've learned that repetition actually works, uh, that you can repeat a request or a, an invitation in it and then describe some more details, like John was saying, uh, to flesh out what you're asking for and then repeat the question later on. And uh, I've also been impressed with John Snyder's demos that you characterize what you're looking for in a context. So you describe the context of the answer, where you're trying to get that from. And that'll help, I believe, uh, get more verifiable results if it can be put within the box of the context. TJ? Yeah, I was just wondering how to how to know like when you need to start looking to see if, you know, the 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 chatbot that you're talking to is quote hallucinating. Um, you know, I guess what are there any clues that can kind of lead me to know, hey, this may not, you know, aside from blatant obvious things, uh, is there any clue or subtlety that I can go, hmm, maybe I need to verify something here. Sometimes you just ask it again. And it's like, oh, yeah, 
Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, always verify. It's just bottom line. Always verify. Don't take it for rote. It's just, it's, it's not there yet. I like to use commas. I like to, as Dave does, I like to do uh, repetition. Um, so I'll, like, for instance, if I ask, uh, I don't know, if I ask uh, for the best mice of 2020, uh, I'll put in best mice of 2020, common best bite mice, common. And think of it, think of it just like you're doing keywords. In uh, if you if you've ever written a blog post or or done a YouTube, you're putting in a whole bunch of tag words, keywords uh, down there. So think of it like that, and uh, it will try to separate it. But you know, it also has a very weird short-term memory. Uh, or misunderstood memory, I guess, is is more thing because you could say, uh, "Give me this, and it'll come back with results from something else." I know that's kind of vague. I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a better example, but the whole point is that if you if you're separating it, you're very concise. Keeping it simple is not going to be the best rule in this situation. John. You can also ask as a follow-up question to its output, you know, how, where did you find that information or what are some similar thinkers in this area? And it will give you some ideas of people to look into and some of their thought processes. And you can Google those people. Be aware that the further along in a conversation you go, the more likely your machine is to hallucinate. And that's why when, especially the early days of Bing Chat, people were able to get it to do all sorts of weird stuff, is the programmers didn't anticipate these long text conversations and it becomes sort of like a copy of a copy problem where things get weirder and weirder as you go on. So there's kind of a sweet spot. In my opinion, it's around like five or 10 back and forth prompts before you start seeing some interesting uh, things start propping up in those conversations. Yeah, it just makes me think that um, there's a lot of uh, prompts that people will include by rote for everything they do. And, you know, I just kind of wonder, um, is it the speed they're trying to get the answers out? Why wouldn't they just internally, you know, verify yourself or maybe the internal verification button? You'd think that that would be a thing. But, you know, I guess we can't complain about what the uh, AI overlords are delivering to us. Let's go to our next question. From Laura Thompson in Beaumont, Texas. Laura asks, has anyone seen Hello Chatterbox? And could it be a resource for a classroom? And there's a link to hellochatterbox.com. Go ahead, Aaron. So I've seen Hello Chatterbox once or twice. Um, I think actually maybe from this show. I feel like I've heard this before. Um, so I looked it up and it looks like it's similar to... Um, the the thing that's that jumped out to me was the concept of the fact that it's similar to like an Alexa, but it's more private so that it's not always listening, but you have to like touch the button on top that the kids can create with the little origami thing, which does look absolutely adorable. Um, and I know my kids would love to personalize it, especially as a third grader. Um, but I think it would be cool for them to come up with some really nice prompts and to get them to learn how to code and things like that. Um, they're saying things like um, picking a random writing prompt. That could be great because students really do get boring with our, or get um, bored with our writing curriculum sometimes because some of the prompts are pretty boring. So maybe if chat GPT and something like this could be put into classrooms, it would be more um, inventive for students. Um, it does look very similar to 
a site that I give my students, uh, code.org. So students are able to learn coding and they get to like play a little game or build a little game as they go. Um, but no, this does look absolutely adorable. Um, I would love to have something like this for my classroom, but um, I see that you need um, not just the kit, but you also need potentially a Raspberry Pi for this. If I'm looking at it correctly, I don't think it comes with it or maybe it does. But it does look incredibly neat. And I like the privacy aspect because when you have an Alexa or some sort of speaker in the classroom, it can have issues with um, with privacy. So yeah, I like that there's a way to turn it off and turn it on again. Go ahead, Arshi. So this product uh, kind of took a hit whenever the uh, Raspberry Pi shortage happened. And um, it is... Uh, a interesting concept where it's not connected to a, a internet source or a speaker that's constantly listening to you. So the fundamental processes here is you make each app or you add the, let's say, weather widget or what have you, and you the customization is there for the child. And it's kind of teaching you a little bit of coding while you're at it. So it is based off the Raspberry Pi. Last I checked, I think it was the three that was uh, being sold with it. Uh, they probably pushed up to the four. And uh, definitely something uh, interesting for the classroom because I know that um, I'm trying to think of the person's name. It's Kevin, I think the first person, first name anyway. And um, they are trying to work with different schools and there are other alternatives I, I, I've seen across. So, you know, it's how do you take your... Uh, Raspberry Pi and make it work in different ways. So I think the product itself is going to be useful, but uh, the main thing is uh, we've alluded to is a privacy factor that it's not connected to the internet or constantly listening to your child. Yeah, I was just scrolling down on our webpage and it seems like if you buy the single one, it doesn't come with the Pi. If you get the uh, four, or was it 3X bundle or the 10X bundle, then it comes with a Raspberry Pi 4. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, Josh just stole my thunder there. So, uh, no, yeah, it, uh, the the Pi is the uh, it's it's a very interesting STEM device. But for four hundred forty nine dollars for something without a Pi, uh, and I suppose with the Pi, I would probably knock it up to two hundred forty nine dollars. And I would I would guess that before the shortage happened, that they probably would have been able to put a Pi in there and and still keep it at an affordable price. Uh, it would be great. It's a great idea. I love the fact that you can stem uh, learn how to uh, program that stuff. So you know, for future uh, personal assistance and uh, things like uh, what's called Matter, which is going to be uh, connecting all of these personal assistants together to something that you can actually use. Um, I think this is a great way to start. Uh, I'm just not too keen on the price tag right now. All right, let's go to our next question. Talalak Lopez-Waterman from Brevard, North Carolina, wants to know, has anyone on the Zoom panel tested Zoom IQ Summaries, which is Zoom's AI solution for meeting summaries? I've not. I've used similar software that um, has some of the same um, aggregation of it, but I think I did see that uh, they offer like a free trial. I think you can you can try it uh, earlier if it's, uh, if it's what I saw on the console. But uh, I'll have to give that a shot. Let's go to our next question. From Laura Thompson in Beaumont, Texas. 
Video editor Christopher Hills is using a switch interface with Final Cut Pro on an iPad. Thoughts about how much this opens up the world of employment, and there's YouTube link. Yeah, I think um, the ability to do quick edits, um, it, it almost seems like the there's you know two different types of content strategies out there. There's the you know um, carefully crafted and uh, you know, uh, long form content. And then it seems like people are just in this machine of just pushing content out as quick as they possibly can. So I could see people, um, taking field, uh, recordings, editing them and pushing them out directly might have some, what they lack in preparation. They may make up for somewhat in getting something that's quick out the door, uh, and you know, the quantity over quality. Go ahead, Dave. I got to see this video, and it is interesting how he's got a switch control for the iPad. And, and I think that's just an interface issue, but it is a good one for uh, people being assisted and for assistive technologies. Uh, the discussion around here about the iPad version of Final Cut uh, probably is instructive because it often suggests that it's a basic setup. It won't do the fine detail work that a professional client is asking for. But if you're just going to pre-visualize, if you're going to rough assemble just for the purposes of allowing someone to make some further decisions on the edit, you could be an assistant editor with something like this. And if you had a Mac Pro that's big enough, then you could have enough real estate space for the cursor to run around and, and get your uh, clips. Um, as a professional myself, I rely quite a bit on techniques that I developed in the software. So as we all start learning to use it on the iPad, we're going to discover some of the ways things can be done on the iPad that, that we didn't expect. So it's still emerging, but his interface uh, experiment is really intriguing because there's going to be uh, soon, I think, more opportunity for people with disabilities to be able to participate in digital media. Yeah, I did see um, that interface that he was using. And I will say that um, given that Apple's very uh, sheepish about offering computing solutions other than mobile devices with touch, um, that prevents some interesting accessibility options. Go ahead, TJ. Yeah, I thought the video was really interesting showing, again, I, I like how it shows that because somebody may be physically disabled doesn't necessarily mean they have a mental disability and they still have that creativity and that willingness to strive and learn. And um, I could see where, again, similar to what Dave was saying, if you did not have the, you know, to the frame edit control that you needed necessarily for this, um, but you could still, if it, didn't have that, you could still use it for things like pre-visualization or that type of thing where the per frame edit may not be quite so necessary. Tony. I want to shake things up a little bit from the standpoint. Um, I think because Luma Fusion has been doing it longer, that it it should be considered as an alternative to Final Cut Pro on the iPad. And Harshid? All right, so we got to check this out a couple different ways, but let's go back on a journey to CG23. 
uh, Tlaloc had talked to ETC. And that device, again, blew my mind just because of the granular um, process of pushing buttons. So we were talking about how can we get, you know, frame by frame or get real in-depth cut, you know, editing. And I think with this is an example with an iPad because of portability, right? But uh, I had a question a couple, uh, maybe last Saturday, matter of fact, and it was regarding having interfaces that you are able to control without all the software that's all built in, because then it just becomes a clicky slide this, slide that. But whenever you're, you know, working on a show and this, that, and the other, you don't have time to go find where's my mouse, where's this. You got to go and you got to go. So. I feel that anything that has a hard switch, hard interface, we've talked about X keys here, we've talked about stream decks alternatively, those are all alternative devices that I feel will make anything work better. So so may you use the knob to, you know, do cuts and stuff with the stream deck uh, or use something that like a switch, it's all one and the same. The idea here is how can one continue to do something that your peer was able to do and have that equality to it. So I think in either way we look at it, I'm glad that, you know, more apps are opening up. And uh, Tony did mention LumaFusion, which I've always heard is the best app on iPad. So again, the competition is always the best thing. And we have tools now that are working along with it. So keep on moving, keep on grooving. All right, before we go to our next question, just encourage you to vote on the questions we have and go ahead and submit them in the con. If you don't know how to uh, become a producer, go to officehours.global and hit the join us tab. Let's go to our next question. From Alan Scott in Fredericton, New Brunswick. I found that my results in school varied a lot depending on who the instructor or teacher was. Is this common? Aaron? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Even my co-teacher and I, who work in the same classroom with the same kids all day long, will both look at a piece of their writing or how they answered a reading question. And I would say on a scale of one to four, which we have to grade them on, four being absolutely out of this world, fourth grade level, and one being you have no idea what we're doing, I would rate it a two. And she would say, oh, it's totally a three because you know of how far they've come and so on and so forth. And I'm like, But when you're looking at something, it's so subjective, even though they're based on specific objectives and standards, a teacher can look at that and see totally different results depending on what their expectations are, what their perspectives are on students that they've had in the past. So everything is filtered through our background knowledge of what we know. So that's probably why regardless of which teacher you have, if if you're getting the same information from different teachers, they're going to grade you or see if you've met their standard differently. So I know there's been plenty of teachers in my life who I know I worked my butt off for and I still got a C, but there are other teachers that I didn't even read the book for the class and I got an A. It just, it depends on the teacher's subjectivity, apparently. Good, Dave. I'm not a teacher as much as Aaron is, but I I endorse what she was talking about there. Uh, In my experience as a student, I was challenged by the best teachers, and the less good teachers, in my opinion, uh, were simply trying to gain my cooperation. And I think that was a distinguishing feature for me in that people were trying to get me to work on learning, and others were getting me to just cooperate and follow along. 
I did get challenged by some of the best teachers, and I've stayed in touch with some of them in the past. So it's been uh, an ongoing educational process for me. DJ. Yeah, I, I took a little different uh, approach to this than Aaron's answer. I looked at it from my perspective of how I felt I did in school and based on the teacher. And I still remember to this day, high school is 40 years ago for me, uh, Mr. McNeilis, who was a social studies teacher, would start off every class going, I need some gum. Who's got some gum? Knowing full well that we weren't supposed to be chewing gum in school, yet he knew that we knew that he knew that we were still you know, doing it anyway. And he was just sort of bringing himself right to kind of that level. It's like, yeah, I get it. I get it. <clears throat> so let's just, you know, who's got gum? Let's get gum. And then let's go on with the rest of the class. So he was just sort of ingraining himself and um, to the, the students and my chemistry teacher, um, Mr. Burke, who did crazy off the wall experiments in chemistry class that maybe should not have been done, but we still loved him for doing that. Okay, John. Yeah, on the quality of instruction side, that's totally true. Different teachers are better or worse or more approachable to certain students and how they prefer to hear the instruction. Um, I remember my statistics class in undergrad, the first one I took, I was failing out within the first week. It was awful. I took it from a different instructor, totally different experience. She connected to real world situations and um, it was one of my favorite classes and I just ended up loving statistics as a result. It also varies on the assessment side of things. In the call center industry, the industry standard for um, assessing calls with QA audits is we try to get all of our auditors within 15% of each other when they audit the same call. It's called a calibration and we have tools to actually do that and practice it. But if you think school, that's a whole grade and a half different between two different people looking at the exact same content with the exact same rubric in something as simple as a call that has very step-by-step -step instructions. So it can vary wildly. And Aaron. EJ, I had to go back on what you were saying a moment ago. I didn't think of it that way. And that in terms of like the student and like the teacher, like bringing himself down to that level. I've actually had that situation happen when students are very excited about something that I have said typically by mistake and it's nothing bad, but I know I was teaching a, um, a climate lesson and I was showing them a map and I said, you know, and somebody said, um, I asked the question about types of severe weather and one of them said an earthquake. And I had to say, wait a minute, an earthquake is not a weather related concern, but let's talk about it. And because I'm obsessed with like plate tectonics and the ring of fire and all that stuff, I went off on a tangent that lasted at least 25 minutes with those students because they were interested, they were engaged, and because I caught their attention on it, they were able to keep questions going for me to let them learn about something new. But then the the next class that I had that I was doing the same lesson for, they didn't grab onto it. So I didn't launch into that tangent. So I guess the relationship aspect of teacher and student does come into play when coming into whether it's assessments or just teaching in general. Absolutely. Uh, let's go to our next question. From Craig McFarland in Boston, Massachusetts. Craig says, I'm thinking about getting an eight by eight HDMI matrix from my home office to avoid constant rewiring for various situations. Any suggestions? And the answer is get a 12, but okay, we'll let Samuel uh, answer that. Uh, well, uh, I've uh, kind of been looking into this myself, and uh, uh, there aren't really too many options that are uh, quite affordable. 
I think Alex uses uh, the monoprice Blackbird uh, 4K, but it doesn't seem like it's available now at the time. Uh, another suggestion, what you could do is to uh, build, if it, you have a stationary setup, you could build your own uh, uh, patch panel and uh, use some splitters and uh, uh, route the HDMI uh, yourself. Uh, that's what I'm considering doing uh, in my setup here. And I'll put a link in the chat of a video. And Sam, when you were shopping for that, um, what were your criteria that you were looking for? Did you want to have like 4K or 60 FPS or a certain mm -hmm. capacity? Yeah, well, it has to at least do 1080, 60 FPS. And then my other criteria is that I have to be able to re remote control it, uh, preferably, preferably through uh, something like a companion. Yeah, good set of standards. Let's go to the next question. Tony Mobley from Newman, Georgia says, I'm considering ending simulcasting to only YouTube on Conversations with Tony Mobley. What are the panelists' thoughts? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Simulcasting is always a fun little challenge there. Um, so when you, you really have to understand how each social network accepts a live stream and how people react to a live stream. Like, I had this conversation last night uh, with somebody else. Live streaming to Facebook is almost pointless because no, most people, they just end up taking a bite and then moving on to the next thing. I even find myself, uh, if, if we have a, if I, there's a TikTok that's more than 60 seconds that I just want the thing to end or I'm going to end it and then move on to the next one. So um, YouTube's always been that great place for long form content. Uh, if you simulcast, uh, I would highly suggest also thinking about Twitch. Twitch is a great way to, uh, to uh, kind of also get in that arena of m multiple areas. But any other social network, uh, especially when it comes to Facebook, some LinkedIn, you know, there's, it's a little gray area on LinkedIn. But a lot of people, they just want to get a minute or two and then get out of there. So uh, it's, it's always a great idea to focus on one and build from there. And then when you're ready, move it to another. Arshid? Community, community, community. It's all about the community. I mean, you could go ahead and use LinkedIn, but it depends. Is that your community? So as Jeffrey said, I would also second with Twitch even though I'm, I don't use it personally. But if you need something as far as casting is concerned or having other viewers be able to watch it in an easy way, then that is an avenue. Um, I would honestly even consider just the community of Discord, right? And streaming from Discord being that you have your friends, whoever's want to speak in the background or comment. So maybe a back-end uh, panel, so to speak. And, uh, you know, that's what people are using, right? And as we all alluding to, you know, Facebook or Instagram or any of those, uh, tw um, I don't even know if uh, there's stuff on the other end, but anyway, Twitter. And so what I'm trying to get at is our community or whatever the community you have based a show around should be uh, given the gifts of the stream. So if we say Discord, people could then, you know, come back to your shows. They could come back to information that maybe somebody had shared, some links. So it's a place that it's going to be uh, someone that wants to look at it, can come back to, can archive it, um, can share it, 
and it's easier. And yes, YouTube is where we also all, you know, gather right now, uh, shorts, everything else. So if you could maybe even expound on shorts and little sessions of like, hey, this is this pre-show stuff and me and him were talking or me and her were talking and, you know, so the behind the scenes could be shorts and I think your channel could even grow in that sp uh, specific space because, again, we didn't treat YouTube right. We just started saying, hey, like my channel, smash that bell. We rather could save that time saying that and uh, make it more powerful with our message. So YouTube and all the others. Yeah, and Tony, the question almost sounded like a double negative to me. So you want to stop simulcasting and you're thinking about exclusive YouTube. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, if one of the things that has been happening is that I, I will announce what's happening on Facebook, but I don't stream to Facebook because of the things that have already been mentioned in terms of engagement. Uh, we have been doing, uh, I'm going to say over the last six or seven months, exclusively YouTube, LinkedIn, and local radio stations in Cincinnati that is an internet radio station. And at this point, we are looking very seriously at just using uh, YouTube and the Conversation with Tony Mobley website, which is basically... Uh, uh, YouTube uh, driven as well in terms of the content. So um, it, it, it's kind of like, I feel like at this point, um, I am getting some engagement on LinkedIn, but I don't feel like it's, I, I think uh, one of the things that I did last week was I actually did only YouTube. And after the broadcast ended, I immediately just share the link from YouTube onto uh, LinkedIn. And the engagement that I received thus far is really, is it, there isn't any difference. And Jeffrey. Arshin makes a very good point. And, and this is another thing to consider, and that is not going live on YouTube, but actually going to Discord and doing your show there live and getting the getting the community set up there and recording then you are also recording the show while you're doing it live and the idea is that that show would then show up on youtube the next night as a premiere and then you basically say hey we're recording it live on wednesdays you're seeing it on youtube on thursdays so now there's a 24-hour wait period and some people they might not want to wait they end up coming over to Discord and becoming part of the community. So this is a great way for you to, uh, to do it. And the other cool thing about that is if, if you and the guest are sitting in chat, if people have questions in the chat, you guys can actually respond to those questions as you guys are talking. And it's, it's fairly seamless. Uh, when it comes to evergreen content, this co seems to be a very good way to do things, mostly because of the fact if you run into any problems, you could stop, you could make your corrections, and then somebody could edit it. And then the next day, it's pretty much seamless for everybody else. So they don't know that there was a problem there. Let's go to our next question. From Douglas Carmichael. Douglas says, what are your favorite Mac OS automation tools? I'm using Alfred and Better Touch Tool, and both are very useful. John Snyder and TJ. 
Yeah, I prefer the launch bar to Alfred personally, just as an interface that makes more sense to me. So I use that as my launcher. I use Keyboard Maestro for recording custom macros because you can tell it like which menus to navigate or which portions of your screen to click on. And Hazel by NoodleSoft is a great automation tool for looking at folders and automatically cleaning up routing files based on title, metadata, anything like that. TJ? I use the built-in Automator for from Mac and have a lot of uh, automations set up to do file manipulation for my photography stuff. Next question. Ryan Schwartz from Baltimore, Maryland. What are your thoughts about the Dyson Zone headphones? Go ahead, Dave. I had a quick look at these. And of course, we're all worried about the quality of air in the world today and how much worse it's getting. I've had personal experience in that area just last month. The uh, Dyson headphones apparently connect to air purifiers, but also when you're outside, it has a snap-on air purifier, which is like a helmet front, and it actually will filter the air right in front of your mouth. Nobody has any information on how sealed that is or whether you sound like Darth Vader doing it, but... It is an interesting option that the headphones are solid enough to be able to add an attachment and then take it off when the um, situation improves. And the only other feature it has is that you can get, by tapping the side of it, a regular report on the air quality in your immediate area. In Japan, this is a big deal. Your immediate area, area air quality and CO2 levels are, no, are mounted on displays everywhere you go, they'll tell you what the air quality is. And of course, we all know they had problems years ago. So yes, it's an interesting thing. I'm not sure, as we know, with the headphones and the uh, uh, goggle glasses and all that for AR and VR, it's going to look a little silly at first. Yeah, I would have thought this would have been something that uh, popped out of uh, our COVID days. Let's go to our last question. From Tatiana Rodriguez in Easton, Pennsylvania. Hello, hello. Any AI resources to help create speeches and presentations? I've seen a few for written assignments, but none for videos of presentations. PowerPoint's, PowerPoint's coach rehearsal feature gives feedback to users. I teach public speaking. Thank you. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I've not seen a lot of assessment tools for uploaded video. I think it's just because video is so heavy to move around the internet that the cost would be really high. So I would recommend using exactly like you're doing PowerPoint's Coach. It's one of the, it's got great feedback tools in my opinion, especially compared to some of the others I've tried. You can have students screenshot that and send it to you so you can see what their individual results are if, if you're not there to assess it. But I think it's a really great opportunity to have your students assess each other because public speaking is all about how your audience receives the information and what they think of you after the fact. So if you give your students that assignment to review each other, I think your results will be just as effective and more people will be involved in the process. We thank you for all of our questions for our first hour, but don't go away. We're going to go right into our second education, our second hour of education. But before we do, uh, just a brief announcement. Our lineup for next week is out. So if you get the email, you'll notice that we have a trademark lawyer uh, scheduled for uh, business and marketing on Monday. Also, get started with 3D printing for our graphics day and gain staging for our audio. Also on Thursday, We'll talk about how we covered our Cinegear uh, show. And if you'd like to know the nuts and bolts of office hours, how office hours works is a topic on Friday. Well, with that, we'll throw to Dave. Dave, what do we have for education? Thank you, Josh. 
Welcome to Education Hour. It's good to have you along today. Back in April, we had a week of brainstorming here at Office Hours. Uh, one suggestion we received here at Education Hour was to have a visit with some educators to see what their setups look like. And we asked a few people if they'd show us their gear. We got a couple of great systems to look over today, so uh, this won't be our ruthless review. So we're not going to take questions on, you know, he should sound better or whatever, but just as an exploration of what's possible for some people who are trying to teach online. So your questions guide the discussion and provoke us to think about them. And your voting also tells us what's more important to you and what we can focus on first. So our first look comes from David Paskin, who's the Torah tech guy online in his own channel and regular with us on Office Hours. Uh, he also does labs on After Hours, which uh, explore uh, Ecamm and a couple of other features. And uh, he couldn't be here in person, so he sent us a video which explains his entire setup. So let's have a look at what he has and see if we can talk about it afterwards. Hey Office Hours, David Paskin here, your Torah tech guy and a fellow educator. I'm sorry I can't be with you on Saturdays, it's the Sabbath and so I actually turn all this stuff off and try and be with my family on Saturdays. But I understand that you're doing some walkthroughs of how people have set up their spaces uh, to be the most effective when they're teaching, when they're leading. So uh, I was asked to give you a little run around my little space here and uh, that's what we'll do. So from behind, um, I'm going to kind of work from the biggest down to the smallest. I've got two computers that are going on here. This guy over here is a Mac Studio, and I've got one, two, three monitors connected to this computer. Uh, and the way I use these monitors is, by the way, I'm a, a fan of smaller monitors and more of them as opposed to large, expansive monitors. So I think this is a 27-inch, maybe a 24-inch, and then this is a 10-inch and a 7-inch. So I use Ecamm. I do all of my classes, by the way, through Zoom, uh, but I use Ecamm. So Ecamm lives over here and my Zoom um, client lives over here with participants. And then if I open up chat, my chat would live over here also. So I have chat and my participants right here. I usually make them bigger so that I can kind of keep an eye on everything that's going on. My main Zoom window sits in this teleprompter. This is the TMP100. I've got my Sony a6400 camera behind that with a Sigma lens on it. Um, but this allows me to look directly into the camera to see my participants. I always keep that on gallery view, even though they end up being really small, um, because I really want to be able to, at a moment's notice, respond and react to um, some of what I'm seeing. I want people to know uh, my my students, my my friends, whoever's with me, I want them to know that it matters to me that they're there, that I see them. And so I spend almost 99% of my time staring right there. This down here is my second Zoom monitor. So I'd use dual monitors and I have the second one here. That way I can keep an eye on, you know, if I have spotlit someone or I can see who the active speaker is a little larger, if there's a screen share comes down here, Often this is not big enough for me to actually see anything meaningful on a screen share, so sometimes I'll have to drag that over. But this is my Ecamm and Zoom world right over here. Um, this computer is a MacBook Pro, and so I call this my streaming computer. I call this one my content computer. Uh, and this is because pretty much everything that I share stems or originates from this computer over here. 
That is connected just using a, um, a cam link that brings, it's actually not a cam link, it's something else, but I'll show you that in a moment. Uh, a, a video capture device, which then plugs into the Mac Studio so that it is recognized. Anything that happens over here is recognized as a camera source, and then I can build up my scenes in that way. So I've got one, two monitors here, obviously the built-in. Um, that's usually where um, I keep my calendar all the time. And I also keep Zoom ISO over there. I'll talk about that in a moment. And then this is where I just share. And I know when I'm sharing a scene, um, uh, when I'm sharing a, an anything for that matter, I'll just take you out of this uh, scene so you can see. Um, well, you can see that I have right, my website up here right now. And I know that whenever I go into a full screen share or even a PIP like this, that whatever's on this desktop is what's going to be shown in my screen share. So I keep whatever I have on this desktop, I keep it in full screen um, so that I know uh, exactly what's going to be shown. I never muddle this up with other windows. I like kind of everything have its, having its own place. So if I have a keynote that I'm sharing or a website that I'm sharing or even a Google Doc that I'm sharing. I have it full screen on this um, monitor. Um, I'll, I'll make the font as big as I can. I'll make the images as big as I can. So it really, so it fills the space. You know, for example, if I were to go to, um, let's go to officehours.global and we'll take a look. So you can see there's a lot of black around the outside there. I have this trackpad here, which is connected just to this computer. And if I just kind of go like that, I can make that a much nicer share than originally when it was like that. So I'll very often, if I'm showing a website or something that has margins, I'll just zoom in like that. Um, okay, so we've got the two computers. There's a third computer sitting over there. It's a Mac mini, and that's connected to this monitor right up here. You can't really see anything on it right now. Um, I always run three instances of Zoom. My main Zoom lives over here. Regular old vanilla Zoom runs over here, and that's the host. Zoom ISO runs on this machine. Um, excuse me, Zoom OSC runs on this machine. And then I use, uh, I run Zoom in a client, in a um, window, in a browser on this machine. And that's because I use socialstream.ninja to bring in chat. So by joining my Zoom call from that um, machine, just in the browser, it doesn't work in the client, socialstream.ninja, which is a plugin that you just put into Chrome, will hear all of the chat. They will all show up right here on this screen, and they will also automatically show up on, um, uh, on my stream. All right, so I've got those three computers, Zoom and Ecamm, Zoom ISO, uh, Zoom OSC, and my content, and then socialstream.ninja over here. I've got two street, uh, Stream Deck XLs right here. These control uh, Zoom OSC. Uh, this is so I can spotlight people, multi-spotlight people. I've got all the different actions here. You can see I'm in the meeting right now. Um, and so I've got a couple, well, you probably can't see, but I've got a couple people there, myself and this ISO, uh, ISO OSC machine. And so this is how I really control the meeting using Zoom OSC. So these two are connected to this machine. To this guy right here. This guy down here, this is my Zoom kind of where I rest my hand. So this is actually connected to the studio. So I can mute myself, turn on and off my camera, open chat, open participants, um, leave the meeting, join the meeting, things like that. 
This Stream Deck over here is for Ecamm. And so this is where I click to change scenes um, and it all lives right here. And I have multiple pages on this Stream Deck. Behind that, you'll see I've got an A10 Mini. I don't really need this anymore, to be honest with you. I had it because I had three cameras plugged into it. I had my main camera and I had my behind the scenes camera. And then I also had an Apple TV, which would allow me to bring my iPhone in. But I recently got, I can't even tell you what it's called. It's a dual, um, I did a video about it. So if you're really interested, you can look it up, torotechi.tv. I did a video on it. It's a dual HDMI input and dual output, but USB. It's not really dual output. It brings, it brings both of those HDMI feeds in separately. It converts them to USB. So I now have my behind the scenes video and my phone or the Apple TV connected to that. So I'm able to have um, multiple cameras in the same shot. Um, that's the one downside of the A2 Mini is that you can only get one camera out of it, no matter how many you have connected. Over uh, HDMI, you can only get one via USB. So the A2 Mini, uh, Stream Decks. I'm using the Rodecaster Pro over here. I wonder if I can give you a better shot of that. Let me see if I can. Uh, da -da -da Rodecaster Pro. Let's see. Eh, kind of, sort of. So I got the Rodecaster Pro 2 over here, which I absolutely love. It's been absolutely perfect for uh, for what I need and for the work that I'm doing. Um, there are, you may have seen on the side of that, I've got a couple of Rode Go 2s for if I am have other people in the room and they're not going to be right up here at the mic, I have those that I can give to them so that they can be part of what I'm doing also. Um, the mic I'm using is a Heil PR40. It's attached to an Elgato low mount, under mount arm, which I, again, adore. Um, let's see. I guess the last thing I can really tell you about is um, the iPad here. So the iPad um, I have in front of me, and I really use this for three things. Um, so the first is my lights are controlled from here. The second thing is if I'm running a keynote, I'll open up the keynote presenter, um, and uh, this will allow me to present from right here. And the third thing is what I use it for most often is using video pencils so that I can draw on my video and see it right there in front of me. So that's that's been kind of life-changing, having that there. In addition to the stream decks that I have on my desk, I also have a couple foot pedals that I'll use. Um, when I'm leading services, I'm often playing guitar, so I don't have hands to press buttons. So I grab myself an Elgato foot pedal, stream deck foot pedal. Uh, it promptly lost connection to the computer. I sent it back. They sent me another one. It lost connection. I sent it back. They sent me another one. That lost connection. I sent it back. They sent me another one. This is the fourth that I've had. Uh, I got it about a month ago, and I'm afraid to plug it in. So now it's a footrest. And instead, I use this little guy that I got on the cheap before the Elgato one came out. It's just a little, it's called the Firefly, Page Flip Firefly. Uh, it's got two pedals, um, connects via Bluetooth. That's the USB that broke off that's jingling around in there. But this thing works every time. This I connect to my content computer so that I can advance slides when I'm teaching. I'm also one of those folks that likes to teach uh, or talk with their hands. And so very often having a foot pedal is, is really, really helpful. I am in a sit-stand sit desk. Whenever I teach, I'm always standing. I find, um, number one, it keeps me centered in frame because my mic is right here and um, I'm 
hyper aware of really my framing and wanting to look the best that I can. Also because it gives me extra energy. Uh, when I'm sitting down, I tend to slouch or I get bored and I look away. When I'm standing, I'm really, again, I could be hyper-focused on what I'm doing. So we've got the three computers, the streaming computer with Ecamm and Zoom, the content computer with Zoom OSC and my content. We've got my um, stream, socialstream.ninja computer over there, the Stream Decks to control it all, a couple foot pedals, the iPad, the Rodecaster Pro 2. Uh, the lights that I'm using are just Elgato key lights, nothing particularly special there. I did a little bit of treatment, sound treatment to the room, not a lot. I've got a hanging a blanket in front of me uh, and a couple of squares around here somewhere. but. That, that's pretty much my setup. I, I, I'll say that um, I am finally, not finally, it's been this way for a number of months, but, but it took a long time to get here and I feel like I'm, I'm in a zone. You know, I've, 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 I have what I need to, um, to really do my best work. And I'm sure that that will change. I, I'm, I'm sure that that will evolve and I will get more things and it will grow. But for right now, um, this ecosystem that I've created really, um, it just really gets the job done beautifully for me and I'm, I'm really happy with it. So uh, happy to answer any questions, but not on Saturdays. Have a lovely day, everyone. Bye. So that's uh, Dave's setup. And Dave is... Uh, thank you, Dave, for bringing that to us. I, I found that pretty comprehensive and I'm impressed by the many stream decks he has there. Um, also thought his caution about the foot pedals was important to note. Uh, does anyone else here use foot pedals? Something has happened to my sound. I will be right back. Nick, you can't hear you, but would you like to share out on your uh, setup? Sure. Yeah. Um, actually, I was I was uh, amused uh, with. I'm going to be literally the complete opposite of what you just saw. Uh, I have far less complexity with the hardware setup, and much more in the software setup. The other thing is, uh, there there was a note in that video about uh, preferring lots of small screens. And and uh, uh, I'm I am the complete opposite. Well, there we, we go. Just gonna plug in my uh, camera here. I'm having a little bit of a US bit of a USB back in this, but uh, let, uh, let me try this time. Nope, my USB camera is not going to work. That's unfortunate. Well, well. Anyway, the uh, the newest addition to my uh, physical studio is a 49 inch LG screen. That connects both to my uh, MacBook Air M2 as well as my PC, and it to me it's much like he, he was talking about lots of individual screens. It's kind of to me like the the touch screens of a iPad or a um, iPhone. That screen can be anything you want it to be at any given time, and, and so I, I actually now that I've this is my second day with this monitor in use, and I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to go back. Um, so let me share my screen and I have a video that I've shared out on uh, YouTube some time ago. Hopefully you can see this. This is, this is the software setup that I'm using. So I'm using a, a free piece of software called Unreal Engine. 
And there's lots of free uh, scenery that you could download. This one, this particular scene uh, is something that I had a student put together for me. Um, it's, you know, there's a bit of a learning curve to get started and, and I'm happy to help anyone who wants to. Uh, but the bottom line is that it's possible to bring video in from a Blackmagic card. So if you have a, a, the ability to have a Decklink card in a PC, unfortunately, the Mac version of this doesn't support video ingest. But on the PC side, you can bring your video in, of course, with a green screen, it'll key it out. And then you can have any kind of 3D world around you that um, you'd like to have. And so one of the things that I've done is added a holographic screen because a lot of times um, my screen, you know, the, my view is going off in a different direction than where my camera is. And uh, if that, it's usually to look at the Zoom meeting. And so this way I can have the Zoom meeting and view so people can see, oh, I'm, I'm looking at you. Uh, the physical setup is pretty simple. So again, this is a home virtual production studio overview, uh, Pixel Prof, if you ever want to look it up to, to look at it. Um, this is from a couple of years ago. Of course, things have evolved. I've actually moved to a different house than, than this was. Uh, but the, the setup is essentially the same. What's going on is there's a PC running Unreal Engine, and that's creating the 3D environment. There is a uh, Blackmagic Micro Studio camera here, and that's plugged into an A10 Mini, as well as uh, plugged into the, uh, the Decklink board inside the PC. And so uh, it's seeing... Uh, myself uh, with a green screen behind me. And uh, again, Unreal, the software is doing all the keying. And then uh, one of the things that's uh, interesting about Unreal is that there are virtual cameras, like this is the lens of the virtual camera. And this is what the virtual camera sees right now. Um, and that that video here is actually being output from the Decklink card. And so that's going into the A10 Mini as well. So I can switch between my green screen. In fact, if, if you look at my little window of, of myself right now, I'm not sure if I'll, I'm showing up on screen, but I can, this is the raw video straight from the camera that's plugged into my A10 mini. And then this is the video that's coming in from Unreal Engine. Um, so that Unreal Engine's kind of busy with all of that. And that the PC is kind of busy with all of that. So the A10 mini is USB connected to a laptop. And the laptop is what is usually actually getting the Zoom connection and uh, doing all the sharing. And so uh, these this is this is an older laptop. Uh, today I'm using the the MacBook Air M2, and um, that is what's connected to this Zoom meeting right now. Uh, one other little nuance to this setup is that Unreal Engine does take a few milliseconds to bring in the video frame. Uh, composite it into the 3D world and it can be moving cameras and all these sort of things and then rendering that frame and feeding it out to the A10 mini. And so to um, kind of dial in those uh, the those milliseconds of delay with my audio, I have uh, Old Behringer Shark. This was donated by a fellow Office Hours uh, panelist. Uh, Jason uh, sent this out to me. And so uh, my audio microphone is getting extra delay added to it so that hopefully um, I, I've got it timed about right where um, my mouth is moving similar to the voice coming out. So this is, you know, again, hardware-wise compared to that last video, um, quite less uh, complicated. Uh, but again, I've, I've got this software going on that's um, more complicated. Now, this is a home setup. 
Uh, I also have a setup at uh, the campus. You know, I teach digital media, so, so this is what I'm doing. So, so this is a full virtual studio setup. So this is like the other end of the spectrum. This is really set up to be very much like you would see in a sports broadcast, news broadcast, etc., uh, where what we have is a, a large green screen stage, and all of this is virtual. So this is a live stream we just did for a class a uh, few uh, days ago. And let me just try and see if I can find the two different studios. Um, so the studio I was in for that shot that I was just showing is this larger green screen studio. I'm trying to find it here. We had lots of camera people. All right, so Momo is talking about it and hopefully we get uh, in just two seconds. There we go. So there's a large green screen site. It's two walls. So there's another wall off to the side here. Uh, in this case, we're running two cameras and uh, the cameras are also uh, tracked. So there's little um, reflector markers here on the, the cameras. So if the camera moves, our motion capture system sees the positions of these markers and uh, alters the background it, with Unreal Engine to uh, match it. So if we were panning this camera or moving this camera, the background would match uh, identically. So this is the other direction in that studio, and, and that's one of the motion capture cameras. Um, we also have a um, a smaller studio, and we used it for this broadcast. So we were actually broadcasting from two different uh, little locations. Um, they're right across the hall from each other. But this room is actually much si more similar to um, the setup I have at home. Here we go. Here's, here's a look at it. So in this case, normally, you know, I have a desk set up here with a green screen behind it. There's a fixed camera. This is a uh, Blackmagic Pocket Cinema 4K. And so, I, you know, sitting at a desk here, uh, I have essentially the same setup as I do at home. Um, and in this case, we were... Uh, using it for standing uh, speaking. And then the two studios are connected both over uh, you know, a direct ethernet line from one studio to the next, as well as um, we have SDI running between them. So there's a laptop here that's able to control the constellation in that bigger studio. And um, we're getting all of the, uh, the multi-view and stuff like that for reference. And so, so those are the different studio setups that I've got going on. And um, I think that that That's covers so it. Cool. I, I can uh, step up. Yeah, I'm going to like stop sharing so yep. that uh, someone else can have a feel. That's field. all right. No, thank you, Nick. That's uh, yeah. That's the top end. If people have lots of money, they can get into that sort of thing too. I'm going to take a few questions here, but first I'll give the panel a chance to ask Nick a question or two. So, um, Harshid, you want to try? Well, I was actually trying to also show my setup, but uh, Nick, as far as questions are concerned, um, is what is the main failure point, if any, if because you mentioned that you're more on the software side, right? So what do you feel is your main failure point, if anything, if something goes wrong? So uh, it's possible, of course, for a PC to crash. Uh, you know, I'm saying this now, and I'm just probably inviting disaster. Um, so far, we have not really experienced. Like right now, my failure point is that um, the the USB hub that I have connected that I was switching. I was trying to switch between a uh, a webcam that's looking over my shoulder so that you could see my setup, and um, if for real, real right now. The uh, you know what's coming in from the eight ten minute. Yeah, you know, that's not. Yeah, you know, that's not working today. 
that's my failure point is, is the USB hub uh, that was working earlier. Um, we do have redundancy on the, the software. So we will run, uh, for example, we're running uh, in that large studio. We have two separate machines running Unreal Engine with the same scene in it. Um, normally under general conditions, we'll have one dedicated to each of the two cameras. Uh, but if there was a failure on one of those machines, uh, the other machine could pick up the load and, and render the background for both cameras. So, um, right. in this particular live event, our biggest failure, uh, our biggest fail point was, uh, we didn't rehearse with our audio gear well enough. And so we had a few mm -hmm. audio glitches. Uh, just for Hershey's benefit, we are going to give you a chance to show what you've got there too. John? Uh, Nick, one quick question. How does someone get started if they're looking at the virtual setups? Like what's like the first thing they should look at? So, uh, you know, you can, um, I'm using specifically Unreal Engine. Like, so for a basic virtual setup, you don't need to go that route. You can, uh, if you have like an ATEM mini, you can add a uh, Ultimat to it, an Ultimat HD to that, and that will do your green screen compositing for you. And that could have a video, you know, especially if you're sitting still, I mean, Unreal Engine is a large 3D environment tool, and it's really effective if you're going to be exploring that environment or you're moving cameras. But at home, you could um, add a Ultimat Mini. Uh, it has an HDMI in, HDMI out, and it actually is, you know, designed to knit into like the A10 Mini to a, something like a, a, a pocket cine camera. And, and so that can give you the, those virtual backgrounds. You can also have additional feeds and the, the composite will be much nicer than just what the A10 Mini could do itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so that would be a start. If you're interested in going the full 3D route with Unreal Engine, uh, you know, just Google for, you know, get started with under Unreal Engine. Uh, the download is free. And then, um, there's a, a lesson available called your first hour with Unreal. And it kind of shows you kind of around the application. And, um, there's just so many, uh, tutorials available out there. Maybe we should do some labs eventually here in, in office hours again. That would be fabulous. Yes. Tony, you had a question. I was just wondering um, if you could talk about uh, has there been any improvement in the way in which Unreal Engine works with the Macs? And the reason I'm asking is because I only have Macs, but I have been I've been weekly or monthly downloading the free applications that are available for that particular month and I've just been downloading them, downloading them. And so I have an archive of so much um, you know, video content for uh, Unreal Engine, but has there been any improvement in the way in which Unreal Engine works with the Mac? Or should I just stop? Uh there no, no, there, there has. Um, one of the more um, critical aspects in terms of what we're doing here, like in terms of virtual teaching environment, and uh, bringing the video from a device like an A10 Mini or a Declan board into Unreal on a Mac is not supported. Uh, but uh, the latest version of Unreal Engine, it's 5.2, uh, is the, the first version that is natively compiled for Apple native silicon. So when you download that, it will take, you know, it's, it's compiled specifically for 
your M1s, your M2 chips. And so, so that's a significant improvement. Um, one of the things that in teaching that we've at Drexel used uh, tools like Unreal Engine for one example is uh, remote lessons for dance. Uh, so in our motion capture studio, we actually did motion capture of all of the demonstrations for the dance lessons, both good technique and bad technique. And then the dance instructor over Zoom can use that 3D environment and they could scrub through that performance. They could play it. They could play at regular speed. They could play at slow motion. They could quickly go through it. They can switch between good and bad techniques. And so the, the teacher at home doesn't need to set up multiple cameras or have a large space in order to demonstrate. All the demonstrations are on the computer. And that's something that you could do with Unreal on um, Maya. I'm sorry, Unreal okay. on a Mac. Uh, so it does work uh, well, and you can create animations, you can create renders. You can also mm -hmm. bring in recorded video in green screen and composite that on a Mac. Okay. Aaron, you're next. Okay, so let me pull up my Hi, picture. There we go. Okay, Ooh, so nice. this was this was my setup, um, 2020 to 2021. Um, so I think I've probably told this story before. I have an overhead mic, um, a shotgun mic, because my husband very generously gave me what I deemed the Britney mic, um, the awesome mic that I know Alex has and a bunch of us have on office hours. But because it was clipped to my sweater and if I had to use... Um, if I had to get some water or use the bathroom really quickly, it was not easy for me to get off and on. So hence the shotgun mic. And I absolutely loved it. Um, over here behind me, you actually, we actually have a mattress that is on its side with some moving blankets over it to deaden some of the sound. Um, I also have moving blankets attached to, um, with clips to um, clothing rods so that again, the light, some of the light from the windows behind them were blocked out, but it also helped with the sound. Um, in front of me, I had a plethora of computers. Um, this computer here was a MacBook Pro that ran my main meeting, which was on this TV. Um, I had to put a black box over it because my students' faces are on there. So for confidentiality purposes. Um, but that's, we had a TV um, screen that we hooked up there. So we were able to, I was able to see the meeting in front of me. Um, so this MacBook was only used for that purpose. I didn't type on it. I didn't do anything else on it besides run the meeting. Then I had my Mix Pre and I had my ATEM Mini. And um, each of the buttons would represent a different Mac item I had. Um, button one was for my personal laptop, the one with the R on the screen. The second one was, I believe, for my iPad. That's where I would do my telestrations. Um, so on and so forth. I also had my school's Chromebook over here, which also ran the meeting. So in case um, that was my fail safe, in case my MacBook Pro disconnected or something of that nature, I was still online, but I was muted over here with my school device. Um, but yeah, anything I wanted to show my students, I was able to show on... Um, my MacBook or my iPad, and it could be videos, it could be um, assignments or going into Google Classroom to show them what we were doing. Um, and then I would have 
my iPad sometimes show a miniature version of my screen as speaker notes and just so I wouldn't forget anything. Um, and then behind the MacBook Pro over here were my sound. Um, so I could check to see what all my devices were showing before I showed it. I also had my Pocket K camera and my fantastic ring light, which I am super mm -hmm. obsessed with. And the camera was just over the main screen I was looking at. So it kind of was like a teleprompter um, before we got the one that I have currently, or my mm -hmm. husband has currently. My setup is at my school. But that's yeah, really so that's... Nice. Thanks. So that's my setup. We're going to stop and take a few questions. They've uh, come up on us. So uh, why don't we have the next question, John? Our first question is from Jason Robert Shaw in Sarasota, Florida. What are the benefits and dangers of using personal IT devices on school networks? Let's go back to Aaron for the first. So there are so many pros and cons to this. Um, I would say my personal benefit is that I get to use a device that I know is top-notch quality. It is backed up and updated very frequently. And I just like working on my Mac better than my school-issued Chromebook. Um, I think you have to be very careful with that, though. Um, for instance, when I use my MacBook and my iPad at school, it stays on my desk. It is for me to create slides, to create lessons, to update Google Classroom, and my school computer is hooked up to my Promethean board. And that is the only thing that is shown to students. Because when I bring my MacBook home for the night, I'm watching TV as I'm cooking on my devices. So I don't want that to be, I say, cross-contaminated at school. Um, Excellent idea. Yeah. So that is kind of a danger because I have heard horror stories of what has shown up on projectors and Promethean boards at schools. Um, right. Across Last the country. Horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say the only downfall is though, um, a little anecdote. I had to go to a another school. I had to go to my local high school to do some professional development. Um, or I was on a committee and trying to learn some new things to help the teachers. And I brought my Mac stuff because my Chromebook was at school for my co-teacher to use with the students because it had all of our routine slides and what we were doing. So when I went to the high school and I tried to log into the server so I could, you know, do the work on the Wi-Fi, I wasn't allowed in because only school devices were allowed on their Wi-Fi platform. So I had to find a loaner and go through the whole process of logging in, which my main source for logging into my school for my two, not two-factor for um, Google to check that it's me, it goes to my Promethean board at school. So, you know, four miles away, my co-teacher was like, what's happening? The screen is saying you're trying to log in, but you're not here. So mm -hmm. I had to go through another channel to um, make yeah. sure that I was connected. But yeah, there's definite benefits, but I think trying to keep it as away from student eyes as possible will be the best benefit I can recommend. Sure. John Snyder. There are a lot of security concerns allowing any devices onto a network. And so most corporations and schools are moving to zero trust architecture, it's called, which is basically they don't trust any devices, which add a whole lot of uh, frustrations and complications to doing things like, for example, my uh, phone, I'm not allowed to copy or paste anything from my work tools. Uh, and a lot of that has to do is we're dealing with patient information. And so I have to be really careful about my setup. It has to be um, 
all I'm allowed to plug into my work computer, for example, is a webcam. And so that's dictated a lot of how my setup works. Um, I can use my personal devices if I can get them through basically my ATEM, uh, but there's a lot that I can't do. And Hersheed. I feel that uh, it is exactly what John said with security concerns, right? So some of the benefits to give example would be like a Sennheiser profile mic. It doesn't require any software. So those are some of the benefits that is IT related where you could bring it into your meetings, go back home with it. It's your microphone, your personal device. As far as computers go, though, or even hard drives for that example, we don't know what the computer might have, may not have. Sure, Chromebooks, you could wipe them, wash them as they call them. And they go back to re they reset into a normal state. Uh, with Apple devices, something same as that. Well, you do have your Apple ID and such as a security layer, but we don't understand what is on that hard drive. So to allow anything on a network can cause so much risk. I mean, in Florida, we had the issue where they uh, sourced a uh, a water plant, right? And uh, it could have gone really, really bad. But it's it's just the little bit little mistakes, the common sense mistakes that people uh, usually fail, and so anything that could even allow a doorway or passageway into a network or into any business for that matter uh, should really be uh, highly you know scrutinized, and uh, that's why these parameters are there to protect our identity, our information, because yes, we're in a uh, digital age world where, you know, all our information is just flooding through marketing and this, that, and the other, and that's why we have all these ads. So, you know, just mm -hmm. be careful and be secure. Thanks, Rashid. Uh, we'll take another question, John. Our next question is from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. With limited budgets, could you see Fire tablets as an educational content consuming device? Eventually, USDZ viewing, maybe even simple content creation. Hershey, do you want to take that one? Sure. Um, personal thoughts, fragmentation, but that's just personal thoughts. Because uh, Google is also coming out with their tablet again, and all these other devices that might be a decent price could be a good thing. But all we've really seen is the Fire Tablet as their tool to make you buy books and buy Audible stuff. Um, sure, we could maybe uh, implement anything uh, further, but it, the fragmentation of the whole Android ecosystem there is caused by that the whole store like that. So if we all thought together and made the store more uh, ample and uh, more supplemental with more applications, because it's not like you can't find Kindle and uh, Audible on the Play Store, I think it would make things a little bit uh vaster and especially how Amazon has already taken away voices like the Ivona voices uh, to make their products have speech to sound more humanistic. So, you know, looking at it as having 3D, having other applications, I, I do see that they would go down that route as trying to be competitive. And that's hence the voice TTS engine that I mentioned, because that was really competitive to what Apple was offering with their voices and their TTS engines, text-to-speech engines. So I definitely see that to be com uh, competitive, they might uh, allow a, a better hardware device, but what they have at current state, I don't think would be worth it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. John, you want to join in? Yeah, I, I agree with Harshid. I think it's a great option would be a Fire TV or a Fire device. Um, I use them for my kids. They have great parental controls. Uh, you can sideload apps. I think where the reason why we don't see them in schools is Amazon doesn't 
isn't a school contractor, and schools are going to try to stay with the same vendors as much as they can. So I think it's much more likely that uh, schools would use Google tablets, especially if there's low-cost ones. All right. Well, we're going to stop the questions at this point and just let Rashid show us how he's set up. Well, we'll I'll show you in by virtue of hearing my setup. Uh, so right. right now I do use a SSL2 interface. And the reason why I'm bringing my interface into uh, uh, the main focus is I like to share my audio because I'm, I have vision issues. So having magnification and stuff does help, but it may not help everybody else. Uh, the other thing, I'm using a Brio webcam, and I do uh, recommend you guys to go to YouTube and go check out the BTS behind the scenes um, uh, episodes that we have done in the past, and you'll see my setups there. I've done one with my Yamaha mixer, and now I've shifted over to my SSL2 Solid State Logic 2 interface. It has on the right hand side, I'm just going to put, I'm, I have my hand to my right of my interface, I have one knob to the bottom right. That's my volume knob. I could travel up all the way to the top of the interface. On the right-hand side, I have a knob where if I shift it all the way to the right, I hear the program feed. If I shift it all the way to the left, I hear just my voice and no program feed. In to the left of that, in the middle of it, I have a knob. With this knob, I have it turned to the left, but say I might have some JBL 305 speakers or such. I could hook them up by audio cables I could spin the knob and I could have audio coming out through those speakers as an output. Now to the left of that, I'm going to come to the bottom of the interface again and there's a square button. I'm going to hit the button. Now the button is turned off as you're hearing my voice. We will engage that again by hitting the button. That is the 4K button. Above that, we'll find another smaller knob, which is the gain dial. We won't touch that because then my voice will go all wacky on us. Above that, we have three buttons, kind of like chiclet buttons, you could say, uh, which is the 48 Phantom Power. It is the line in in the middle, and then a, uh, a high Z to my to the right of that. Identically, I have that to my left on top, and that's basically what it means to have SSL two two input or two input channels. Now, how I use my setup. To teach people, I do a show on iBug today, and it's called Android Insight. So I usually try to show people how does the TalkBack screen reader work, or how can I, share, you know, share audio and such. So let's give it a shot. Connector connected. YouTube menu. YouTube button. One up. Button. Focus on show and tell. Setups for educators. Office hours. Global. Forty-eight. Watching. Play video. Out of list. Yes, we're hearing that. Yes. And sure, that was a bit loud. That might have been disturbing, no, but it's it okay. how I, I learned from you know Mickey, everybody else. This is YouTube, just as you... Okay, that's really fast, probably, right? So, let's, uh, let's turn it down. All right, let's see that now. And So, that's my setup. I use an audio interface as my main focus. I use a Brio webcam as my picture. Sure, I would love to have a Sony camera so I have autofocus and all of that sorted out soon enough. Uh, Windows 11 machine is just running the show, so nothing too fancy. But, you know, just being intuitive with your devices and your uh, hardware. Uh, software does do a lot of good stuff for people, but if it does good for that group, that, you know, that group utilizes it in their power. I'm a hardware kind of guy because I tactically like to feel the stuff, so... 
Thank you for hearing my setup. Great. We're going to do two questions, then we'll go show Tony stuff. Our next yeah. question comes from Jason Robert Shaw in Sarasota, Florida. What kind of grants or other funding are available to help educators with tech setups at home or in the classroom? Go ahead, Aaron. So the only one that came to mind immediately was Donors Choose. So Donors Choose is a website where teachers can um, request certain items. It doesn't just have to be technology. It can be rugs. It can be certain supplies that they're looking for. Although typically something like an Amazon wish list um, can also potentially help with this. That um, I know a lot of times in August, uh, teachers will put out their Amazon wish list or their donors choose list and try to get some items before the first week of school. So yeah, I would say, you know, Amazon wish list, but donors choose. So that way, so donors choose is interesting in that you don't have to fund an entire project. So if I wanted to look for something that was $250, different companies or individuals could donate $20, $25, or however much they could. And then um, at the end of it, the donors choose has or asks, it's optional, teachers to take pictures of their class using the devices or whatever that you requested and send it as a thank you to the people that help donate. So I think it's really cute. I know I got um, a projector from it um, years ago and it's been used to help other teachers in other classrooms. So donors yeah. choose an Amazon wish list. Thanks. Um, Chris Clark couldn't make it today, but he has a question. Let's go to that question. Chris Clark from Tempe asks, a fundamental challenge for teachers teaching from home is carving out appropriate space in their homes for a studio setup. Discuss issues and compromises that arise. Well, let's start with Aaron again. So when I, when the world shut down and I was looking to build a studio in the house, um, we are fortunate enough to have a guest room where clearly people weren't some coming over to stay over during this um, time. So we were able to turn that into a studio. But when that school year was over, we did transition it back to our guest room just in case. But you you have to have some space. You have to have a place where you're able to block out light, maybe block out some sound. Uh, it doesn't have to be perfect, but students are very distractible. So if they see someone walking in the background, the question is, who's that? What's that? Um, John Preto, I feel like my students would love your background. They To see your birds and to see um, fun screens lighting up, like they would be so zoomed in on that. It would not even be funny. Um, but because of that, I think using a, a very solid backdrop helped my students be focused. Um, although it wasn't as fun, but, um, but yeah, there's, you need to have space. You need to have a place that, you know, family members aren't walking around. So it's a lot of family members making sacrifices too of, oh, if you're going to be in the kitchen and we've set up the space, I can't use the kitchen for the day. Um, so it's things like that. So teachers definitely had to do some fancy footwork to make some home and studio setups. Mm -hmm. Nick, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and I think w one of the things to really think about when you're just trying to find a spot that already exists is uh, how are you going to be able to control the sound and the light? 
Um, we saw before with Erin's setup how she had this mattress in the room with uh, moving blankets. And and I have moving blankets hanging all around me as well. And I, I think for many of us in office hours, it's an idea we got from Alex Lindsay. Uh, the, the echo that's in a typical room, we when we're in the room, we just don't think about it. But when it's coming through on Zoom, it, it's one of those traits that I can contribute to the Zoom fatigue, you know, because the, the folks on the other side are trying to hear your main voice through all of this other sound. So, um, uh, some of the things to think about are portable and stowable things. So you can get, uh, you can get backdrops or green screens that are in, uh, either something that, that folds up. Uh, so the, the one, the green screen that I was showing in that YouTube video, uh, twists it's, it pops up and then you, if you twist it and you turn it into a little taco and it goes into a little little bag and, and actually slips in behind a bookcase and so it goes away so uh, something to think about is uh how can you set up and put away quickly so that you could use a room that's used for other things but you just need it for teaching time you bring up a backdrop so that as aaron was saying that you block out all the visual background issues and um Hopefully you can have, you know, a room that at least has carpet or something like that to eliminate the, uh, the echo. And so that's, that's my main suggestion. I'm personally, I'm, I've been using basements. The the room I showed in the video was actually a, a, you know, a study room in that uh, house. But before I set that up for that, you know, that was a playroom and uh, I was working out of the basement and today I, I work out of the basement i have about a nine foot by nine foot piece of floor space and there's no windows here so it's super easy to control the light and um you know most of the basement's available i'm just i, I made something of a bedouin tent uh so mm-hmm. mine doesn't pop up and go down but um it's one large room that's also used for other things and so i have a couple photo background stands that are you know draped with uh, like, you know, packing blankets and, uh, right. and photo backdrops to, uh, be able to isolate the space. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that. Happens. Yeah. It's always a compromise. Um, I've been encouraged by houses I've seen for sale in my neighborhood, uh, which offer a zoom room, uh, outfitted with outlets and enough power and no window that's going to face, you know, south to the sun all day. So, some of this is actually encouraging to hear about. We're going to stop the questions at this point and let Tony show us his setup. Go ahead, Tony. Well, hello, everyone. And I'll try to make this quick. I think I'm going to start at the top and then come down to the bottom. So I'm going to switch to my little webcam. Okay, and we're going to start at the top. So at the top, I have three JVM lights that are controlled by my uh, Mac Mini Daily Driver workhorse. Here I have uh, M1 iPad. This is the main monitor that is that has the uh, my main. Uh, M1 connected to it. This is my teleprompter. Behind the teleprompter, I have a 10S, uh, 10S uh, uh, Max iPhone that I'm using the Shoot app 
to be my primary camera, which goes into the ATEM Mini. And so those are my, uh, so what I have in my ATEM Mini is camera one is the primary iPhone that you see most of the time when you see me, that's what you're looking at. In two, there is a, another Mac Mini, which is on the top here. You see the two Mac Minis. The one on the top is the Mac Mini that is my ISO machine. And this is going to be used with uh, conversation with Tony Mobley and House of Worship. In uh, three, I have the iPad M1 that I showed you before. And four is the Apple TV 4K, which is located right there. And next, you see an iPhone uh, 11 Pro, which that is controlling the settings on the iPhone that is behind the teleprompter. And there you see a mouse, which is used for the ISO machine. Keyboard for the for the ISO machine and multi view out here, which everything that's coming out of the ATEM Mini is showing there. Behind this monitor is a Raspberry Pi, which I have disconnected. This is the Stream Deck. This is the mouse that I'm using for my Mac Mini that controls everything and the keyboard. My switch, which I can turn my volume on and off. This is the Zoom H6, which is my audio interface. And I think that is it. Um, and this is my M1 Mac, M1 Mac Pro, which okay. is a new addition um, from my family from Christmas time. Sure. And I okay. think that's my setup. And the last Appreciate thing I that. would say is yep. that the this is all there, uh, in a bookcase. Yeah. So um, my wife is still allowing Tony, me to. Tony, to we use can't this see view. you. We can't see you anymore. Please uh, put your picture up. So Switch I'm still. There I'm go. still. Thank I'm you. still using the. Um, I'm still in the living room and my wife is still allowing me to use the bookcase and is extremely frustrated with my uh, density uh, data cables running across the floor in front of the fireplace. And she is not a happy camper about that. Yeah, that's all right. We're going to, we're getting up to the top of the show here and John's been very patient with us not to show his setup yet, but John, we're squeezing you in. We'll go a little bit over time to allow you time to show it. Go All right, ahead. I'll go real quick. Um, so let me cut here. Oh. So basically on my setup here, the keys are, I need everything to be able to go through that Dell laptop down there. So my ATEM Extreme ISO is what's controlling everything. I have the outputs going to my two monitors so I can switch between my Dell and my Mac mini. I have a Mac Mini down underneath my desk here. Um, I have my Telestration set up 
over there and my teleprompter at the top. And that allows me to give the kind of instruction I do is mostly virtual instructor-led training where it needs to be me talking and then my teaching assistant's over there barking at me. Um, I have blackout curtains and I do have bass traps up in my corners and that really helps me get the best audio I can out of this room. I really like your uh, light scrims there. Uh, that, those work pretty smoothly. Yeah. Uh, the blue in the background behind you, is that an extra light back there? Yeah, I have a couple of little spotlights back there that were I got off yeah. of Amazon. Okay. We have one last question we can go to. Our last question is from Jason Robert Shaw in Sarasota, Florida. Are you planning to, or on adding a Vision Pro from Apple to your setup? We'll start with you, John, and go to Nick. No, I'm not because one is super expensive. Uh, for me to have it for my family would be prohibitively expensive. And I don't think schools are going to be able to afford something like this right now. I think in the future, VR instruction will be a lot more popular. But it's not just the cost of the device. It's the cost of developing learning materials for the device as well, which is even more expensive. So I don't foresee um, schools really investing in VR for at least three to five years at the very, very, very soonest for the most aggressive schools. Sure. And Nick? Being one of those most aggressive schools, we'll be getting one right away. <laughs> so, you know, I, I teach at a, at a, at a uh, research university, so, uh, and, and I teach this subject, uh, you know, immersive media, virtual production. So um, we also have across the street from us is it, behind their building is our nursing college, which has its own VR lab that I collaborate with. And across the street in the front of my building is a neurology, uh, neurology uh, bioengineering lab uh, that we also collaborate with. And so we're, we're already working in this space with the equipment that exists in the market today. Uh, so we'll, we'll definitely be getting this. And, and so, you know, I, I totally agree with what John says that, you know, this is not a, uh, uh, you know, start using it in K through 12, uh, in, you know, in traditional sense type of device. Uh, but it's a first out, you know, um, you probably would say the same thing of the first iPad. And uh, today, those style devices are routinely used in education. So I, I think mm -hmm. John's probably about right in the, that five-year range. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll be getting one. <laughs> so inquiring minds want to know, are you going to get a pre-release version? Are you, would you be able to? Or can you not talk about that? I'm I'm no Apple insider whatsoever. So uh, okay. you know, <laughs> I I I have a Mac Darn. I have a Mac M2 Air. That's my latest uh, Apple acquisition. Yep. I I'm a I primarily a PC user. Unreal Engine. They don't get along very well. At the same time, I'm looking around myself and my the devices that I choose for my personal life are MacBook Air, an iPhone, an Apple Watch, and, and AirPods. So, you know, the, the products resonate well for me on, on a personal level. Um, mm -hmm. But again, I, you know, I was on Tuesday's show and the, the Vision Pro as a mixed reality device is, is an entirely new paradigm uh, in this space in terms of uh, readily available commercial product. And so th there's a lot of things about it that I'm genuinely happy to see that, that Apple did exactly the kinds of things I've been hoping for in this space for some time. There are things that you can do with this that you cannot do with other common commercial devices. Uh, so, um, so it's definitely, if you, if you're in that space, if you're looking at, you know, advanced, um, uses, if you have an application for it, I, I think that it's, uh, it's worth getting. 
And John Snyder, bring us home here today. Yeah, it, and it will be used more quickly than that. I mean, there are already VR instructional materials out there like um, surgery simulation labs all do VR of different sorts. And the Apple headset is way cheap compared to a lot of tools out there. So it just depends on the industry, the use case, and whether it's, you know, who you're saving um, or what you need your funds for as to whether or not you'll use these tools. It's time to give a big thank you to everyone who contributed their ideas today. And we can only take a few of them at this point, but we hope you enjoyed seeing everyone set up here. This is the uh, closing show for the season of uh, Education Hour. We're taking the summer off and back in the September area. Uh, be sure to check out, though, the uh, accessibility series that is planned for the gap between us. So there's still going to be a show on Saturday, and it's going to be a focusing on accessibility, uh, technologies, and special services provided for uh, accessibility advantage. So check that out. And anytime, day and night, you can check out After Hours and get advice on almost anything. And that's the global part of our community. Um, we have a, a, a large uh, open meeting uh, about an hour after this show. If you go to After Hours and ask about it, it's a total crew meeting and it's a, a monthly event. So be sure to check that out. Thanks for being here. As I said, we're taking a summer break, giving Saturday to the Accessibility Technology Series. And uh, I think you should check that out because it's increasingly important to pay attention to, even as we said today. So, bye for now. a bit of fun, wasn't that? Interesting stuff. Thanks for your description, Hersheed. It was pretty comprehensive there. Nick is already gone, of course. Can't thank him again, but I will on, on uh, Discord.